Hey, everybody. Absolutely fantastic episode of the Bitcoin show today. We talk about Bitcoin breaking $30,000 for the first time in a while. We talk about what's causing this rally and where we expect Bitcoin to go from here. Beyond that, we talk about the Bitcoin mining hit piece that was written by the New York Times and published recently. We also talk about the current state of affairs with Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin's hash rate, and the difficulty adjustment. Overall, it's a fantastic show. Hope you enjoy it every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern time on Twitter Spaces, The Bitcoin Show. Hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Bitcoin Show, the fifth episode of The Bitcoin Show that happens every week at 2 p.m. Eastern time where we discuss all things Bitcoin, past, present, and future. And boy, do we have a lot to talk about today. If you want to support the show, retweet the tweet that's pinned to the top. It's simply the link to this show. That'll help get this show in front of as many eyeballs as possible. It's still early, ladies and gentlemen. We're only on the fifth episode, so we want the show to continue to grow. We also have the show available on Spotify Podcasts and Apple podcast. The links are in the bio of the Bitcoin Show Twitter account, which is the host of the space today. Uh, We do The format of today's show is going to be a little bit different, not an interview format, but rather a panel discussion. And I'm very, very excited uh, about the panel members that are going to be joining us. It almost, it looks like there might be some technical issues preventing a couple of them from joining the stage, but we're going to get those sorted out. We're going to figure that out and make sure everybody can get on stage and there's no problem. Uh, but yeah, to introduce everybody, uh, you know, I'm your host, P.O. Here's my co-host week after week, uh, Aubrey Strobel and Trevor Owens. Aubrey's trying to get on stage right now, but she is, of course, a marketing partner at Trust Machines. Uh, most importantly, the host of the observation on YouTube, an absolutely badass Bitcoin content focused YouTube channel. She is a big time content creator and the former head of communications at Lolly, among other very notable positions inside of Bitcoin. And so uh, we are waiting for her to get on stage. There's a little bit of a technical issue, it seems, but I'm sure we'll get it sorted out and she'll be on stage. And then, of course, Trevor Owens, an investor in several Bitcoin startups, a partner at the Bitcoin Frontier Fund, the CEO of Ninja Alerts, and of course, the host of the Ordinal Show on Twitter Spaces an extremely talented Bitcoin-focused podcast host in his own right. Love doing the show with Trevor every single week. Trevor, how you doing? I'm doing great, P.O. I'm doing great. Uh, live from New York. I'm super excited for all the events we got this week. Of course, we've got the uh, Ord City Scarcity uh, Gallery over the next few days. We've got the Nifty Party on Thursday I'm super excited for. I'm going to the NFT Now 100 tonight. I'm super excited to uh, be at NFT NYC and Bitcoin hitting 30K. Man, what a good week it is. Couldn't come at a better time and what a fun day to do the show. I mean, literally yesterday was pump day. We'll have to play the pump it up song. Maybe, maybe. maybe. We're going to hold out on that. We're going to wait for 50K before we start pumping it up. Uh, Anyway, we also have Leonidas on stage. Uh, a self-proclaimed NFT historian, a collector of ordinals, uh, a builder of Ord.io, and of course, uh, the co-host of The Ordinal Show. So very fun having him on. And then we got Publius, uh, a, a Bitcoin 
Bitcoin OG in his own right. So we have a lot to talk about today, ladies and gentlemen. We got to talk about, obviously, Bitcoin breaking 30K. Uh, at this point, an 80% plus gain in 2023 for Bitcoin. We have to talk about uh, some news stories. You know, there, there was some, uh, you know, a little bit of a hit piece written by the New York Times uh, on Bitcoin mining. So I think we should touch on that. Ordinal inscriptions surpassed the 1 million mark. So really, really exciting stuff. Uh, RFK Jr. actually tweeted about Bitcoin and referenced Nick Carter, the first ever ho uh, guest that we had on the Bitcoin show. So that's a lot of fun. Uh, and also China pur is purchasing gold en masse and there's speculation of a gold-backed cryptocurrency that China is going to be putting out. So a lot of that stuff is worth discussing. It looks like we have Aubrey on stage now. Aubrey, how's it going? Going good. Got the Wi-Fi working. Uh, are, did you say you're going to be at NFT now tonight? Who said they're going to be there? Me and Trevor both will be. Oh, cool. We can we can meet in real life. Let, let's go. We got a, a I'm excited co-host meeting. <laughs> That's going to be a lot of fun. Um, awesome. Sounds good. <laughs> um, so look, I think first story that we should kind of discuss uh, is definitely Bitcoin breaking 30K now. And, you know, not to make this like a technical analysis price action discussion, but I do think that it's worth talking about. If we go back to the first episode of the show where we had Nick Carter on, that was when Bitcoin first started rallying. It was right Right after you know the kind of start of the, uh, I guess you can call it banking collapse at this point, and uh, you know the natural reaction to uh, the government, uh, the Fed, and and you know um, the creation of liquidity in response to the banking collapse led to that first rally on Bitcoin. And so, you know, I'm just wondering, is that is that what's causing this break above 30K? Can we expect, you know, do we think that this is just going to continue? Publius has his hand raised. What's going on? Yeah, I think it is going to continue. And I think some of it is impacted by the CPI um, number coming out shortly. Um, and so that's, that's driving some of it, I believe. Also, um, yesterday, if you looked at the, if you looked at the sort of volume and the buy and sell orders, 98% of all trades, or 98%, there's 98% of all people uh, basically in the market were trying to buy Bitcoin. So you had like virtually no sellers, uh, and that's like incredibly uh, bullish. Like the whole the whole setup, and volume has been down over the past. Um, I, I believe volume has been down over uh, the past several days because uh, basically there's so few sellers in the market. Well, that's a that's a statistic you love to hear if you're a Bitcoiner. I don't know, Trevor, Aubrey, Leonidas, anyone else have any thoughts on this rally and you know whether we can expect it to continue? What might be causing it? I mean, I think Publius just kind of pointed it out, uh, but yeah, any other thoughts on this price action? I mean, historically, if you look back to 2020 when there was a lot of um, chaos happening with COVID, we saw a, a crazy dip, right? A lot of uncertainty, and then kind of pushed into a bull run. Um, you know, if you look at the Bitcoin, you know, price over time, a lot of times it does go up in times of uncertainty like this. So am I surprised that it's at 30,000? Honestly, no. Um, we'll just have to, I, I think it's funny now um, that MicroStrategy is in the green. Uh, saw that their average price is like 29,000, uh, their purchase price. So uh, that's good to see MicroStrategy is uh, doing okay now. 
Love to see Giga Chad Michael Saylor in the green. I also love how the windows for the haters to dunk on Michael Saylor seem to get smaller and smaller. MicroStrategy, of course, ladies and gentlemen, has an average purchase price of $29,803 per Bitcoin. So finally back in the green. Uh, I remember at the end of 2022, there were rumors that Saylor had been selling. And it turned out the rumors were true. He just reset his cost basis and actually took a bigger position of Bitcoin. So I got a big kick out of that. And uh, you know, love that he is staying on brand with the Giga Chad, uh, you know, kind of reputation. Um, you know, Trevor, I don't know, what do you make of this price action, and uh, where do you think we kind of go from here? Yeah, it's, it's. I think it's. I think it's hard to say. I mean, I think that overall, the um, the crypto space is looking a lot better, of course, than it was in December. There's more innovation happening. We've broken new ground of ways to bring. Um, Users into the space, uh, especially in, in Bitcoin, there's Nostra happening, there's Ordinals, there's a lot of excitement. Um, you know, the the bottom signal is typically when you have nothing to talk about, right? It's like you're just so bored, and I feel like that hit in December. Whereas, like, you know, being on Twitter Spaces, like a few weeks went by, and it's like, man, what do we have to be excited about? Let's kind of like make some things up and and bring some hopium because we need it to get through this. And then since January, things have been picking up. Um, a lot of the in-person events have been very energizing and seeing people out at uh, Outer Edge LA and now NFT NYC. Um, and so, um, you know, I think we're a little bit still on the knife's edge in the sense that like uh, there could be uh, steps backwards before we continue to make steps forward. But I definitely think 30K is a, is a good milestone that's going to keep, you know, we'll see maybe a little bit of a rally and then maybe a few step back or, you know, it's hard to see us going back to like 40K, 45K, et cetera, higher uh, in the short term. But I think that things are kind of solidifying um, at a solid ground. And so I think it's a, it's a good time to kind of start making plans for what's going to come, you know, 12 months from now. Yeah, obviously it's incredibly hard, you know, impossible to predict. One thing that I think about a lot is just where we are in the halving cycle. And it looks like as of this point, May 2024 uh, is the expected month of the next halving. So we're 13, 14 months, call it, out from that. And I just do wonder like where we're at in, uh, you know, relation to the the halving cycle and whether, you know, this is the, the kind of start of the next run. If you look at previous cycles, uh, where we're at now, like I actually do refer to the stock to flow model. I understand that it's been invalidated, but I think it is a pretty good way to kind of look at this, you know, where we're at in this cycle compared to previous ones. Um, you know, and it's, it's obviously hard to tell, but I, you can kind of, you know, draw out, you know, maybe the general direction that we're going in. Uh, Publius, I don't know if you have any thoughts on where we're at, you know, cycle wise at this point, and then we can definitely move on, uh, you know, to ordinal inscriptions, the, the hit piece on mining, but I, I'm curious if you have any, uh, any questions. I mean, any yeah, thoughts? Yeah. Un, un, uh, unclear to me that the, um, having cycle is necessarily, um, driving anything with the price action. One, um, one, one, one more, one, one thing that I think, um, uh, may very well be contributing to it is um, basically you're getting <laughs> you're get, you're getting a lot of macro sort of events happening at a blistering clip. So, for example, you have uh, just in terms of countries in the past few days that have basically disassociated with the U.S. Um, and 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 are trying to move away from the U.S. dollar as as a de facto sort of um, position. Um, you have uh, Nayib Bukele. Uh, who's basically saying the United States' ability to use democracy as foreign policy is gone. 
Um, you have Benjamin Netanyahu from Israel saying, Israel is a sovereign country, makes decisions by the will of its own people, not based on pressures from abroad, including from the best of friends. Um, you have Germany saying, after 78 years, it's now time for the U.S. soldiers to go home. You have Malaysia prime minister saying, there's no reason to continue to depend on the U.S. dollar. Saudi Arabia's crown prince says he's no longer interested in pleasing the USA and wants something in return for anything he does. Um, you have um, Zambia's opposition leader uh, saying America has no moral authority when it comes to lecturing Africa about democracy. Um, you have Mexico, uh, the sorry, the president of Mexico saying Mexico is not a colony of the U.S. Um, French President Macron visited um, after his visit in China says the Europe. Europe must reduce independence on the dollar. And that's just like a sample of everything that has been said from these nations in the past week or two. Um, and I think that is um, what we're seeing is a lot of uh, countries are basically um, hoarding gold on unprecedented levels. Uh, end of 2022, you saw basically record, uh, uh, record uh, levels of countries uh, buying gold and, and uh, sort of getting out of treasuries. All the corporate, so a lot of corporations are buying U.S. treasuries, um, and you're and you're seeing individuals buying Bitcoin. So I think the response is individuals buying Bitcoin, then we'll eventually see corporations, then uh, more countries like El Salvador had done. Well, Publius, you were incredibly prepared with those quotes from world le uh, leaders, so I appreciate that. That was awesome. And I love what you said. I, I feel like you know, an individual's in a position where they're like, hey, if I don't want exposure to U.S. dollars, what are my options? Well, a, a foreign currency isn't that in interesting to me because that's still controlled by a government and can be manipulated. Gold, I mean, gold at this point is pretty manipulated, but we'll talk about that when we talk about China acquiring 18 tons of gold. All you're kind of left with is uh, you know, the digital revolution Revolution, hard money, you know, a la Bitcoin, uh, that's neutral. It doesn't, you know, it's not pegged to any individual country. Trevor, you have your hand raised. What's going on? Yeah, I just want to say, like, about the having, like, I agree that the st stock to flow model is not something to bet on. It's kind of a little bit like astrology in a sense, because uh, the price is definitely driven by demand. Um, and, you know, demand can, like, even if supply goes down, demand can go down, right? Demand has to go up for the price to increase. Um, but I do think of it like sort of like a holiday. It's almost like, you know, the, the, the Christmas, the, the, the December holidays where it's like it is a narrative that drives people to take actions around it. It's a simple idea that people can latch on to in a narrative that's pretty powerful. So while I don't think it like affects like the macro in any big way, it does affect sort of the, the micro and how people uh, gear up um, towards that specific event. Yeah, I love the way you're thinking about it, Trevor. I let Nucci on stage. Nucci's a friend of mine. Uh, I know he's been buying Bitcoin for probably the better part of a decade at this point. I know you were way earlier than I was. What prompts did you to come on stage, man? You're welcome on the sh on the show, and I'm excited to have you. What what prompted you to come? Yeah, on Yeah, I had a question for the uh, for the stage. Um, and I, you know, it's funny listening to you guys talk about stock to flow model uh, as astrology because thinking about when Plan B introduced stock to flow. I just remember being so pumped about it. And looking back at it now, I'm like, if some smart dude gives me a really great model that tells me this stuff I'm going to own is going to go way up 100x, like, I'm going to believe in it. I'm going to retweet it. Like, it's no no wonder he got a million follow and, like, everyone in the space loved him. He told us all exactly what we wanted to hear and had data to back it up. And now when I look back at it, I'm like, oh, that, that might have been a little foolish to, like, go that far down the path that this is a super cycle and all that. But, um... 
either way, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, and I, I still think Plan B is a, a great mind and a, a great contributor to the space. Um, you know, I'm looking at this and I'm having flashbacks, like this little bull market. I'm having flashbacks back to about the middle of, in between the last having cycle, I feel like there was a little mini pump and it was like a fake out. And I'm trying to like wrap my head around what's going on here. Like what, what, what movement we're seeing. I know obviously we had the banking crisis and the blogging million dollar bet and all that kind of moved us up uh, a step. But I, I've been thinking about it, a lot about like where, who are these buyers and like what is just, what is going on? I'm trying to like get a framework for like what, what is going on in the market right now. And I, th- I think Willie Wu said something yesterday where he's like, Nucci, we, we lost you at Willie Wu. Nucci, you with us? Damn. I, I, was, I was enjoying what he was talking about. Nucci, let us know if you're back. Willie Wu, of course, another on-chain analyst, arguably I'd say top three in terms of social media reputation. Plan B, Willie Wu, Will Clemente is definitely up there. Nucci, we can't hear you if you're speaking, uh, but if you do come back, we'll be excited to hear what you have to say. Nucci, Nucci, we lost you at Willie Wu. So we, we missed all that, but we want to hear Oh, it. Oh, no. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. man. I'm trying yeah. to remember where that was. Uh, well, yeah, okay. So can you guys hear me now? Oh, okay, great. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah, Willie Wu said um, – let me rewind here. Willie Wu said that – yeah, he said he saw buyers, uh, but they're not traders. And I didn't know exactly what he meant by that. So I've been trying to, like, kind of recalibrate my framework and figure out uh, basically, like, is 30 where we should have been this whole time, barring, uh, you know, a collapse of FTX and Celsius and choke point 2.0? And have we just been really suppressed? Um, or is 30, are we kind of in, like, this false uh, sense of security? Like, is 30 just, like, a, a temporary play? Like, I don't feel super comfortable at 30, but I'm trying to figure out, like, is 30 where we should have been all along in this? And, in, in, like, all of those events just pushed us way lower than it should have been. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I'm thinking about this. The, the other piece that, uh, I've been thinking a lot about is, um, Ethereum. Ethereum's obviously, I think it's like basically deflationary right now. It's like, I think the supply is essentially going down. I know this isn't an the Ethereum show, but, um, obviously like the happenings are having diminishing effects and Ethereum has done great over the past five or six years, love it or hate it. Um, I personally love Ethereum for what it is. It's, I love Bitcoin for something completely different, but I think Ethereum is awesome too. Um, and I'm trying to figure out, like, are we going, we, we've never seen, you know, Bitcoin go net, like we've seen the emission rate half. It's still inflationary. It's just like, it, it just going down, right? But we've never seen it go negative. And like, is Ethereum, and it lags about, you know, six months to a year when those halvings happen and the price rips. So I'm trying to figure out, like, are we going to see Ethereum just, just go parabolic out of nowhere because it's, dis- you know, it's essentially diminishing the supply at this point. So, yeah, I think the two questions I would ask the stage, if you guys have any opinions, are like, what do you think this move to 30 is is coming from? Um, is it the macro environment? Is it just a recalibration and we should have been here the whole time? And do you think Ethereum has a potential to kind of light up the next cycle early in the next six months? Or am I just dreaming there? Sure, sure. let's go to Publius. I saw you raise your hand. Uh, maybe you can, if you want to tackle both questions, of course. Uh, otherwise, you can choose one. Then we'll go to Leonidas after, after Publius. Yeah, just the first question. Um, yeah, I think what's happening in the markets are people are starting to see the dollar uh, as almost more of a risk, uh, potentially becoming more of a risk asset as opposed to uh, a risk-free, stable uh, asset. And um, there's actually this really good post from uh, this uh, 
blogger, journalist, uh, VC dude named Mike Solana uh, called Jump. And it was basically like, the idea was like, um, <clears throat> you know, back when he was a kid, people would say, you know, if everyone in China jumped up in the air and, and, and then stomped on the ground, it would like shift the earth, earth out of orbit, which is like a, a myth, I think. Um, and uh, it, it kind of like blew his mind. <clears throat> and we're sort of seeing, um, I think what we saw was actually um, a little bit of that, similar to how like GameStop uh, or AMC had, instead of insider trading, they had outsider trading. Um, you know, people saying, hey, I like, I like the coin, or I like the stock. Uh, they're all moving all at once. Um, that, I believe, is what occurred with Bitcoin. Now, you didn't see a price vertical uh, uh, the way, uh, you know, basically Balaji was putting out, uh, was, he was kind of doing like a Paul Revere thing saying like the printing is coming, the printing is coming and willing to burn a million dollars no matter whether it happened or not within 90 days. So like you didn't see a price vertical to a million dollars yet, uh, but what you did see is a narrative vertical. So you see like all the news, uh, all Twitter, um, these countries, they're all talking about de-dollarization uh, and and um, the destabilization of the U.S. dollar, which um, you know, I'm American. I think it's sad. I'd prefer that not be destabilized. Um, but what people are doing is acting in their own self-interest and basically buying Bitcoin as schmuck, for lack of a better term, like schmuck insurance. Like they're just trying to uh, make sure that they don't lose their purchasing value over time. And I think people are doing this, uh, like what I'm hearing with like large, large uh, wealth uh, wealth managers is uh, they're buying a lot of them are being forced to buy Bitcoin uh, sorry gold rather because they don't, they're not really like that into Bitcoin but I think a lot of individual uh, a lot of individuals are simply buying Bitcoin um, and and they're uh, making a lot of them are making a decision to uh, stay you know you know not 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 go 100% into money markets um, there's a really good um, you can hate him, or hate him or love him. I'm, I'm mixed feelings on him, but there's a really good um, uh, talk from Peter Thiel back in 2014, sort of predicting the end of the fiat uh, bubble. And he said the the worst thing to be in at the end of the fiat bubble is in money markets, and that's basically treasuries. And so you see people going into treasuries right now, um, like the the kind of like end, like the, the your standard person who has a bank who has a bank account is is for the really kind of kind of for the first time ever it like is like mat, like in mass going into treasuries uh, but you have like a sort of counter uh, group who understand bitcoin who are being like oh it's it's not quite a trap but it's kind of a trap we're going to park our money in bitcoin instead yeah well well put i mean i think it's an extension of of your contribution previously so appreciate that leonidas you had your hand raised something to contribute there and then we'll uh, we'll move on to uh some of the other topics like the one millionth ordinal inscription and also uh you know this new york times hit piece but uh leonidas go ahead yeah so i, I just wanted to say that i tend to agree with the first part of what nucci was saying just in regards to like my mental model would be you know, there's lots of like really interesting global events and macroeconomic trends that are happening. And that can definitely explain, you know, maybe why Bitcoin's outperforming other assets in the short term. The kind of like really zoomed out scale of things to me is, you know, you have these uh, large like cycles of just like uh, boom and bust, bull runs and then bear markets. And what we saw this time, which was a little bit different than maybe the 2013 and 2017, was that when it bottomed, you know, it bottomed pretty hard pretty quickly. So, you know, in, in prior uh, bubbles, like everybody kind of feels like, you know, we're 
you know, we, we hit some kind of euphoric high and then now we're coming down and it, it probably is going to be chilling for a while, but it's kind of slowly, it much more slowly goes down. This was a little bit different because you're coinciding uh, the crypto crash, our four year kind of crypto crash uh, with the global macroeconomic kind of recession that occurs. And then you have like people like Sam and Doquan just like pouring gas on that fire. So to me, this is a, uh, you know, like Bitcoin is like a reflection of just psychology. Like there's a, like, that's basically what it is. It's just kind of magic internet points. And it's like, how do we value those? And the human psychology, I think, at least in my head is, you know, it's going to be hard to, I'm hoping we don't top combining a crypto crash with a global economic recession with, uh, you know, FTX and uh, Celsius and all of this again, that would be a pretty crazy series of events. So all of that is to say, I think the psychology in people's heads is that we bottomed and we bottomed a bit quicker in prior markets. It's usually a brutal kind of two years of like slowly bouncing around, getting lower. And I think we bottomed pretty fast here within a year. And I think people are finding it unlikely that we're going to go lower than we've gone. And that's just like a nice kind of cushion in our in our uh, mental models. And that, that's just basically what I'm intuitively feeling myself uh, processing. Love the take, Leonidas. And we actually have Maneeb on stage, co-creator of Stacks, CEO of Trust Machines. Uh, he's a Bitcoin builder. Honored to have him on the show. Maneeb, uh, any thoughts? Hey, everyone. Yeah, I think the, the Bitcoin talk made me interested. Thanks for thanks for pulling me up. Uh, I, I think I can, I can share maybe a little bit of a historic perspective, and that's the one that I personally go back to. Because the way I look at you know any of the on-chain metrics or the previous data is not not so much that I'm a believer that the history is just going to keep on repeating itself in similar ways forever. Obviously, that's not true. I think new things are going to happen and things are going to change. But I do think it's the most pure um, data capture of just humans, right? Like how they work and you know what they've done in the past and how things have reacted. And that's the most kind of like pure data source we have. So. This interesting thing about this cycle was that actually the the bull market Bitcoin price didn't go as up as it typically does, right? So in in some ways, like the the market lasted a little bit longer, but it actually didn't go crazy. So which was an interesting thing. And on on the flip side, when it went down, uh, this is the only cycle I believe. Um, so I've seen three so far. This is the only cycle where we actually broke the last previous cycle's all-time high and went below it. It usually never happens, right? So this means that the crash was actually harder than uh, before. And and typically, I think where we typically bottom out, if you apply those models to this this cycle, um, the number would be 27, 28K. So I think 27, 28K is where you should have bottomed out I think the FTX crash and the choke point 2.0 and everything else that happened, it actually took you down way lower, even to the effect of like going below the, the previous uh, all-time high, which was surprising. Like I've, I've never seen that before, right? So those were like clear buy times. Like when there was blood on the street, I was I was enjoying collecting, <laughs> collecting some Bitcoin uh, back there. But uh, this this thirty thousand in a way like feels like oh maybe a bull market is, is starting. I'm personally a little bit skeptical. Again, I'm not a trader, no finance background. I'm, I'm an engineer. I actually think that now we are entering that time 
where there's that slow decrease back down to 27, 28. I'm not saying it's going to happen in a week or so. I'm, I'm thinking months in months. Like people would get bored at some point, right? Like before the before the bull market really starts, historically, at least like people get bored. Uh, folks who are kind of like not mission driven, not true believers, they just go away, right? And then Bitcoin does its thing again. And, and you, you kind of like, you know, enter enter the next, the next cycle. Uh, with that said, I think this is the first time that it, the world changes and the space at which they're happening. Like we're just entering very uncertain times. The, the, the banking potential crisis, what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and whatnot. And I do think that Bitcoin is a hedge, a very strong hedge. It, you can just exit the system. You're not If you're doing self-custody, you can just exit all of that crap that might happen in the banking industry, you know that you are out of it. You're just standing outside and you just exit it and you're not taking any any risk on that side. Like personally speaking, like I don't think um, I've ever been heavier on Bitcoin. Like I got out of like other assets, like not not crypto, like even, even other things, um, dollars even, because Bitcoin it, to me actually feels like like a safe thing. And it wasn't there like 10 years ago or five years ago because Bitcoin felt risky. But I think this thing has been out there for like 10, 15 years, uh, hasn't been broken yet. And I think the network just keeps growing and is incredibly resilient, uh, and much, much more so than the kind of stuff, the turbulence that we are actually seeing in the, in the legacy uh, financial markets. I love that perspective, you know, the shift in mindset of Bitcoin from a risky gamble to a safe haven. And obviously that's what it's designed for, uh, but it's easier said than done, uh, you know, when you're basically introducing new digital money to the world. Trevor, you have your hand raised. Uh, any thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think um, Nucci brought up like, um, will we see Ethereum rise as well? And you know, notably, Bitcoin has cracked 30k. Like the the 2k level for Ethereum, I think is a big is a big milestone. But I think that um, when I when I compare Bitcoin and Ethereum right now, at least on in the micro and not the macro, um, you know, I think that the question for Ethereum is like, what is the low hanging fruit? Like, how did the fundamentals change, or what can change the fundamentals? Like we saw um, Arbitrum uh, launch, and I think that that was somewhat of a disappointment. I mean, nothing to be ashamed of, you know, like it's, it's, you know, a 1.5 billion uh, market cap, it's impressive, but there've been some disappointments around that. And, you know, if you think about like, what is the narrative for Ethereum right now, you know, I've, uh, a big part of it over the past, um, you know, half a year has been like these L2s and these scalability solutions. And it seems like, you know, gas is down on Ethereum, like Gwei is pretty, um, I'm looking at right now, it's like 52 Gwei for Ethereum, you know, it's pretty pretty healthy, and so, you know, it's clear that like new use cases on a fundamental level are maybe going to drive more growth in the short term. But for Ethereum, I mean, we've had a bunch of great use cases already. Whereas what we saw with Ordinals on on Bitcoin, we saw reachable Bitcoin nodes go up fourteen percent in the last three months. We've seen um, fees from inscriptions uh, generate uh, represent like three to four percent of mining um, of mining revenue. And, you know, we're seeing this difficulty adjustment. I'm curious, um, hopefully Nick from Luxor Mining can join and talk, talk about that to tell us what's going on there. But the, the fundamentals of Bitcoin are shifting a lot more and there's more juice to squeeze out of the fruit uh, or the orange for Bitcoin right now, I think, than Ethereum. And so, you know, my short term prediction is that we will see 
um, more movement um, on Bitcoin uh, than Ethereum just because there's more low-hanging fruit to pluck. Love it. And uh, yeah, hopefully Nick from Luxor can join us. That would be a fantastic panelist to have on given the topics. This, of course, ladies and gentlemen, is the Bitcoin show. We run this every Tuesday, 2 p.m. Eastern time each and every week. If you want to support the show, retweet the tweet that's pinned at the top. We want to get it in front of as many eyeballs as possible. Also, uh, of course, follow the Bitcoin show Twitter account, which is the host of the show today here on Twitter. Been extremely excited about the guests that have come on the show previously. Today's more of a panel style uh, episode and we are very excited about the guests that we'll be having on in the future also uh, you know speaking of rich from Luxor uh, you know obviously Bitcoin mining has come uh, into the spotlight a little bit you know as New York Times has published what a lot of bitcoiners and really just a lot of like reasonable people in general have called uh, a bit of a hit piece on Bitcoin mining if you didn't read it the New York Times uh, basically published a one-sided article that they claim, uh, you know, basically emphasizes Bitcoin mining being extremely harmful to the environment. The article claims that 85% of U.S.-based miners use fossil fuels for energy, and that has led to rising prices in some areas. Obviously, Bitcoin enthusiasts have denounced the article as propaganda and argue uh, that the data used did not, uh, it was not accurate, and there were not opposing viewpoints provided. So this is one of the age-old kind of areas of FUD, of fear, uncertainty, doubt against Bitcoin. Um, you know, any of the panelists, any thoughts on this? Was there merit to this article? Is this part of Operation Choke Point 2.0 in many ways? I know it sounds like a conspiracy theory when you bring it up like that. Uh, but, you know, just a very conveniently timed hit piece on Bitcoin's mining when seemingly there hadn't been uh, any hit pieces quite like this specifically focused on mining in a little bit. So any thoughts on the New York Times article uh, that focused on Bitcoin mining? Anybody on the panel? Uh, look, if, if everybody's just like, nah, that, that article was a hit piece, we can move on. We don't have to discuss it. Uh, Aubrey, please go Sorry, ahead. I was also having a, a Wi-Fi issue. But um, yeah, you know, these pieces, they come out uh, almost, you could, you could just expect annually a hit piece on Bitcoin mining to come out. Um, and the New York Times has a slant, right? They, they, they have an agenda. And you have to, if you read this article and go through it, it's a very well done piece, but they don't debate the other side. And that's the problem. Um, and it's, it's meant to have people have a visceral reaction to Bitcoin. But what they don't talk about is that 40 to 70% of Bitcoin mining is done through renewable um, mining. Uh, depending on the time of year. Um, and they're going to pull out different stats. I think what's really interesting, and I would I would lead everyone to go check out a thread by at DS Batten. I don't know if we could throw it up in the Twitter spaces, but he does a really great analysis of breaking this down. Um, and I, I love for people to, I mean, I would we could go all day on it, but it's, it's a really interesting talk about grid operators during blackouts, which is, what this article discusses, um, and it actually, you know, taught me quite a bit about what happens during blackouts. Uh, so, if you want to link that up there for people, I think that's a really good resource. Would love to, Aubrey. If you want to ping that over to me, I'm having trouble finding yeah, yeah. it uh, right here. Yeah, yeah. I'll searching. send it to you. 
Perfect. Also, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if this is part of Operation Choke Point 2.0, but Twitter Spaces has not been playing nice with the Bitcoin show. Trevor cannot raise his hand or something. Rena can't unmute. I can't mute. So you're stuck with me. Uh, you're going to hear my voice no matter what. I literally cannot mute right now. Uh, and we've had trouble getting speakers on stage. So forgive us in advance for any technical issues. We will have our podcast editors edit out any uh, kind of friction that we experience if you do want to listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or share the podcast with people that aren't in the Twitter sphere after the fact, but still enjoy learning about Bitcoin. Trevor, I do see your hand here. I hope you can unmute. How's it going? Nope. All right. Operation Choke Point is in full effect. What we're going to do, ladies and gentlemen, is we're going to hear from anybody that can speak on stage. So at this point, I'm just leaning on Anybody not experiencing technical issues, but otherwise I'm going to get a back channel going, a Google Meet. We're prepared for this. We're professionals. This isn't our first rodeo. And I'm going to send it over to Trevor uh, so that we can hear him. I'll, I'll get it over to Nucci too, and everyone will be able to speak. But Publius, Leonidas, Maneeb, anybody, are, are you guys able to unmute? It doesn't sound like it. Aubrey, you t Wow. Can, can uh, the audience uh, hear me? Can, can you hear oh. me? <laughs> I can. I can hear you now. Audrey. I had to keep coming in out of the room. I think Twitter needs to fix its product. I don't know what's going on. Someone at Elon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we just hit a thousand people in the space. So maybe, you know, <laughs> it's either uh, Twitter's breaking or we're having a DDoS attack on the space right now. Unclear if I can be heard, but I, I did want to give like one comment on the mining thing. So for folks who don't know me, uh, I am a petroleum engineer. I've worked in the energy industry for quite a few um, years and what I just wanted to give some commentary on kind of the mining article from the New York Times. I think there was a lot of fake news in the article without um, stats from the DOJ or DOJ Department of Energy and EIA. Um, very few people know that 20% of all electricity in America is renewable and of that only 60% is on fossil fuels. And when you think about U.S. mining, we are account for like 38% of all mining in the globe, but of our mining, actually more than 70% is renewable in America. So I just felt like the article was a bit of a hit piece, like not taking things out of context. And um, specifically for my home state of Texas, we are one of the few states that um, does Bitcoin mining with flare gas. So capturing something that would have been sequestered into the environment that's harmful for CO2, using it for mining and like actually doing like oil operations in the right way in the state so that um, you can continue to mine and create like a new income stream for these small kind of family oil producers and things like that. And so just wanted to share some of those stats that are largely unheard of. Well, that was fantastic, Rena. We can hear you. You came in just at the nick of time. <laughs> Absolutely love it. So look, I, I want to ask a follow-up question because obviously you are absolutely qualified to discuss this. A petroleum engineer, I'm pretty sure uh, on both sides, the uh, the kind of haters of Bitcoin that FUD the mining situation and the supporters can't say that they are petroleum engineers themselves. Rena, do you see a future where we trend towards, you know, I, I think you kind of alluded to it, but 100% renewable energy for Bitcoin mining and also... Bitcoin mining being used to actually utilize what the energy that would otherwise be wasted. 
because obviously, uh, if anybody knows anything about energy, and I don't, right, I'm not an engineer by trade, but my understanding is that most energy that is created ends up getting wasted because energy is so hard to store. So naturally, Bitcoin mining feels like something that would make sense to plug in to those systems to actually have that energy go towards good use. Am I out to lunch on that or am I in the right direction? You're absolutely in the right direction. So a lot of Bitcoin mining that is used with, let's say, non-renewables like traditional oil and gas is all on natural gas. Natural gas is fairly clean burning for America. So we don't admit that many emissions into the environment. So a lot of kind of Texas producers have transitioned to that. For renewables to be prevalent for all mining, the costs would have to go down. So if you think about like wind farms in California or solar farms, they're able to store the energy to an extent, but it is not able to be captured on time efficient manners that makes sense from like an economic perspective. The only way for that to happen is to have them actually run 24-7 and then use the um, excess energy for mining or other grid management, which is just too um, untenable in America today. Love it. And one other question, is the future of Bitcoin mining largely nuclear, solar? You know, what other, what other sources are we looking at? Depends on where you are, but like a lot of places in Norway do hydroelectric because they have like fjords of like strong water power. Um, areas in China had, did, had previously did solar farms. Um, for America, it would make sense to do solar farms because we have areas in the states like Arizona that is like almost 98% sunny. And so it would make sense to do that. Epic. Well, absolutely love it. Uh, we, Ladies and gentlemen, we're trying to figure out these technical issues. I've got a back channel sent over to Trevor Aubrey, Nucci, anybody else that needs it, I can absolutely send it over to them. So please join that back channel. This, of course, the Bitcoin show every Tuesday, 2 p.m. Eastern time. We run this show here on Twitter, also available on other platforms. Little discussion there, a little deep dive into Bitcoin mining. Going from the mining itself, uh, I want to talk a little bit about difficult, or actually we'll save the difficulty uh, a adjustment discussion uh, for when our guest joins a little bit later. I got a couple ordinals uh, champs here, Trevor, Leonidas. Uh, I'm sure Publius can talk a bit about ordinals. Ordinal inscriptions have actually surpassed the million dollar mark. So on April 8th, 2023, the number of ordinal inscriptions surpassed a million. Ordinal inscriptions, if you don't know, uh, if you're new to Bitcoin, new to the show, ordinal inscriptions allow users to inscribe Satoshis with, you know, uh, arbitrary content, let's call it, so, you know, text, pictures, video, software. And Dune Analytics data is showing that almost 170 Bitcoin, so about $4.7 million worth in fees, have been collected by miners since the trend began. And six different ordinal inscription marketplaces at this point have seen aggregate total volume of almost 20 million bucks. So an absolutely electric start to the protocol. Bitcoin stamps, which you've probably heard Trevor talk about on this show before, uh, are a new way of minting arbitrary content to the Bitcoin blockchain. And Bitcoin stamps has actually gained traction. 17,000 plus stamps at this point on the network. 
uh, on the network. Whereas, for example, Litecoin, um, you know, has 224,000 Litecoin-based ordinal inscriptions. So I know Leonidas is the ordinal's champ. Uh, Trevor, uh, probably the, uh, you know, the runner-up. Uh, any comments, if we can hear from you, because tr- uh, Twitter is giving us technical issues, but I have this back channel available to anybody. Trevor hasn't joined it yet. He can you hear me? Not- can you hear we me? We can hear now? you now. Yeah, go ahead, buddy. Go ahead. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, no. I, um, so, yeah, man. What a great, what a great week for the ordinal community, and also these the Bitcoin stamps thing is a is a counterparty um, application of um, you know typically for those who don't know counterparties where rare pepes are from. I know Pio, that was a big W for you in the NFT days, getting in on those rare pepes. Um, you know, counterparty has been a protocol that I think has been around for seven years and Leonidas can talk about some of the, the market cap of the assets on, on counterparty, but it's, it's, it's quite significant. The, um, you know, if you look, if you look at the, the market cap of the, the non-fungible assets on counterparty and a lot of those were stored off chain. So the actual media was not on the blockchain and stamps is a, um, kind of an interesting, um, model where they are, uh, Putting the data for the file, they're converting it to I think base uh, base sixty four or you know converting it basically to uh, t- to text and you just put it in the um, with the the tag stamp and then it puts that data throughout a bunch of different UTXOs um, in a um, in the multi sig area of the transaction and it does increase the uh, the RAM usage of all the nodes so there's been some debate and discussion about that. From what I've seen, the numbers uh, work out where, you know, it would need to be much more significant to have a, an impact on the health of a network. Um, that's more of a technical discussion. Um, but it's now, instead of where, you know, inscriptions are sitting on the block data level, the inscriptions are stored in the blocks, but there, but the, there's kind of two parts of a node. There's the UTXO set, which the, um, the nodes need to have in memory to like verify transactions and to make sure that um, something is a valid uh, piece of Bitcoin. And then there's of course just the data on the raw blocks. And the interesting thing about stamps is that they exist on both levels as opposed to the inscriptions in the witness data of the, of the block data. And so, you know, there's been a lot of pedantic debates about are these, um, you know, non prunable. Of course, I think anything can be pruned, but they seem like they are, at least less prunable than the inscriptions. It's harder to prune them, which if you are a Bitcoin maximalist who says, you know, anything other than payments is is uh, is bullshit and we shouldn't do any of that, then, you know, maybe that's like something that you don't like. But if you are someone who thinks that we can't break Bitcoin no matter what we do and that we need to run experiments and, you know, if a, if a model is proven by data to be uh, less than ideal, then take steps to innovate and that any problem can turn into an opportunity, can turn into innovation and knowledge and a way to move things forward, uh, then I think it's something to be pretty excited about. Um, and so it's also been just great for me diving into the tools that Counterparty offers. I think if you are not a Bitcoiner, or you're not familiar with, with Counterparty, just looking at the tools and toolkits that they have uh, come up with over the years, I think a lot of them um, you know, the, some of the solutions are not going to give you the user experience or not give you the benefits of, you know, the full smart contracts that you come to expect on, on other chains, but there's a lot of creativity in the things that they've done. And I think it just shows the potential and power of what can be done on Bitcoin. And so I think it's a big eye opener. I mean, they have all types of different assets, fungible, non-fungible and counterparty, you know, it, it, the, the actual like mental model and, 
um, way about doing it may, uh, you know, TBD to see, uh, like how far it can go, how far it can scale. If the UX is going to be able to go to mass market with how the, the, their version of the smart contracts work. But I think nonetheless, uh, it just shows the energy and excitement around Bitcoin, the potential of things that you can do on Bitcoin. I think it's a big, uh, narrative, um, violation in terms of Bitcoin, not being able to do things that other chains can do. Love it and love that we're able to hear from you, Trevor, having some technical problems. Ladies and gentlemen, please retweet the show at the top if you want to support. I also have the uh, article that Aubrey referenced about the New York Times hit piece uh, pinned to the top there also. Leonidas, not sure if you can unmute. Can we hear from you right now? Maybe not. Maybe not. Operation Choke Point 2.0 bleeding into tr- uh, Twitter spaces, choking out Bitcoin spaces everywhere. This is too much. This is getting out of hand. But we are Bitcoiners. We're resilient. Uh, I will share this link with Leonidas in the back channel to get him uh, speaking on the show. I don't believe that we can hear from Manib either. I will share the link there too. Uh, you know, moving well, and, and just on the subject of counterparty, the big thing about counterparty that was such a problem is just the user interface and and uh, the difficulty uh, level when it came to actually using the product. To buy, uh, and uh, I'm going to mute you for a second, Leonidas. Oh, boy. All right, here we go. There we go. Um, To buy a rare Pepe on Counterparty was incredibly difficult, if anybody's ever done that. Rare Pepe, of course, uh, Bitcoin-based NFTs that feature Pepe the Frog. That was what Trevor was referencing. And those NFTs have been around since 2016. So any kind of newish Bitcoiner that has an opinion about NFTs got to understand NFTs have been on Bitcoin since 2016 and traded with Bitcoin. The native token, uh, you know, that you were buying uh, rare Pepe's with largely was Bitcoin. Obviously, Counterparty was used at times also, and that was XCP. But I'm going to unmute now, and uh, I'm going to keep quiet so that uh, there's no echo and Leonidas can talk. Uh, so, Leonidas, please take it away. Please take it away. Okay, so is, okay, so is there an echo right now? Uh, there is. There is. I'm going to mute you again. Okay. Um, yeah, Leonidas, if you have headphones, I suspect that you might not be using headphones. Uh, if, if you want to give me a thumbs up on the Twitter stage, uh, this doesn't usually happen, ladies and gentlemen. There usually aren't layers of technical issues, but there are today. Um, Leonidas, I'll throw to you one last time uh, before we we move on while you get your audio situated. But let's see if you have some headphones on, if um, you know the echo is not there. But Leonidas, let's give it a go. Maybe not. No. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Can you hear? Beautiful. Are you able to hear me without an echo? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Very cool. I'm hearing myself with an echo. It's fine, I guess. All right. So, yeah, I mean, look, I think it's a psychological milestone hitting a million. This is something that we've been kind of looking forward to for a while. The hitting the thousand mark was a big deal. Hitting the 10,000 mark was a big deal. And a uh, hundred thousand was also a big deal. So I think it's just hitting round numbers. And, you know, that's, Obviously not a super insightful <laughs> kind of thing, but you know, we, we love, we love round numbers. We love 10 K supply collections and um, it's a cool thing for the community to celebrate. So it was, was more of a vanity metric, but I think it was something fun for us all to rally around. Absolutely. And, and I guess from your perspective, you probably know ordinals better than anybody else, uh, you know, p- potentially on this stage. I'm not trying to throw shade, but I just mean, you know, you're building, uh, you're building in the ordinal space. Um, what do you view as the future of ordinals? How do you view ordinals impacting Bitcoin in the long term? 
So I think the legacy of ordinals will be bringing use cases to Bitcoin that are not just currencies. So pretty much it was only acceptable before ordinals to be, you know, trading Bitcoin, holding Bitcoin. And that was kind of the limit of what you were acceptable, what was acceptable to do. Ordinals brought basically a standard for non-fungible tokens. And it was popular enough that it basically made it very clear to people that you know, Bitcoin's probably going to have more use cases than currency. And now we're seeing a bunch of other use cases. So, you know, it's going to be the ERC-721 standard of Bitcoin, it looks like. And I think that's obviously, a you know, interesting thing to have on Bitcoin. But I, I think the legacy is ushering in a new era of Bitcoin where the maxis have been keeping people at the gates for a long time. And now we're seeing a lot of new developer activity, a lot of uh, kind of Web3 activity coming over. And that's, that's the next uh, chapter of Bitcoin, in my opinion. And, you know, the release of the Ordinals Protocol kind of triggered that. Yeah, I mean, I love the take. Uh, very succinct. Uh, so we had these Nick from Luxor in the crowd, but I think our technical issues may prevent him from joining the show. We want him to talk about the Bitcoin difficulty adjustment. This was going to be juicy. Maybe I can get him this Google Meet uh, address. Trevor, you think that uh, we can get him that? Yeah, I just I just sent it to him, and I can I can add something as well about um, beautiful counter, counterparty. I mean, um, so I've been doing this fun little like uh, project on there to learn. There, I've been just like using this um, this feature called dispensers, which is really cool, which allows you to do these like uh, distribution of tokens, where it sets up a Bitcoin address that people just send Bitcoin to, and it issues these uh, these stamps or any other asset. It works for uh, fungible assets as well, and. Um, when I did this, like somebody just sent me some people have been sending me stuff to this wallet address, like beyond uh, beyond Bitcoin. And I was doing it for like a dust amount of Bitcoin plus, um, which is about like 25 cents and just network fees to give it away to people. But someone sent me 25 of this uh, Pepe Parado and it looks like it's a um, uh, it looks like it's a NFT. Um, um, yeah, it looks like they sent me 25 of these. And I'm looking at this in the free wallet. It's, it's fascinating because the market cap of this single asset is like 362 million on Counterparty. I have to dig deeper into it, but it's just like there's a lot of um, things on Counterparty that people are not even aware of. And I think that you know um, now that we're moving to a phase on Bitcoin, I think that the, the thing with Bitcoin has been... Um, Partially just like there's a lot of experimentation, of course, in other places like on Ethereum. I think that two years ago when I got into the space for me, that was like the watershed moment where DeFi and NFTs had proven, um, you know, product market fit. But for the Bitcoiners, you know, they kind of um, dismissed a lot of it, of course. And now I think that reality is catching up where the data has become overwhelming that we're seeing that these markets have uh, product market fit, they have you know sustainable value and market cap, and now that reality is coming back to Bitcoin. Um, and so I do think that we will continue to see movement and you know people taking an interest in um, you know counterparty and of course all the other Bitcoin layers and technologies rollups. I don't know if we will see uh, rollups on Bitcoin because that would require um, changes to the core Bitcoin network. But there's a lot you can do you know with inscriptions. There's a lot you can do with Operterm protocols and others uh, like Counterparty. I know Manib spent a long time uh, building in that space with um, 
block stack before uh, developing stacks. And of course, stacks, uh, you know, I'm obviously a, a big fan and I think there's a lot of potential uh, there for SBTC um, and expressive smart contracts. And so there's just so much opportunity and, and um, sort of asymmetric information uh, about, about the Bitcoin space that I think a lot of people uh, would benefit from at least digging into and exploring. And the merging and the, and the um, exploration of these different technologies is really important because it's going to lead to more discussion and um, more debate that will lead to new solutions and new innovations for even better ways to do it. Like the, uh, you know, technology is always changing. It's always evolving. And, um, you know, one solution will definitely find limitations and we will discover trade-offs that will lead to even better solutions in the future. Fantastic. And I, I believe, so allegedly we have Nick on stage, Nick from Luxor. I don't see Nick on my stage because of technical issues, but Nick, can if you can hear me, uh, can we hear you? Can you chime in? So I, I don't I don't hear Nick if he's talking. If, if people can emoji if they can hear Nick, but I don't hear Nick. Okay, no one hears Nick. Nick, we, we'll get this uh, meeting. I think Trevor sent you this Google Meet, and we can plug you in through the back channel that way. Operation Choke Point is you know it's bleeding into Twitter Spaces here, trying to hold the Bitcoiners down. Hey, Nick, you're on, gentlemen. Hey, hey. Well, thank oh. you. I can hear me. You Amazing. Can, okay, can you hear me? Now we can hear. I don't think that Nick can... Oh, geez. All right, here. Nick, can you hear me now? I can hear you. Yep. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, look, uh, we're really happy that you're joining us. One thing that we wanted to talk about was Bitcoin's uh, difficulty jumping 2.23% higher. So on April 6th of this year, Bitcoin's difficulty rose 2.23% to actually reach an all-time high of approximately $47.89 trillion, uh, thus making it much harder for miners to find blocks. This marks the fourth consecutive increase in difficulty on the Bitcoin network since February 24th. Uh, despite the increase in difficulty, the hash rate is still high at 340.61 exahash per second, EH per second. And, and forgive me, I'm not a blockchain engineer. Um, the average block interval is still under 10 minutes. Uh, I'd love to hear some perspective from you, Nick, uh, as someone from Luxor. Uh, please take it away. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, everyone, appreciate you having me on the stage. Uh, I guess I'm like the resident ordinal miner here. Um, so thanks a lot for, for having us. Uh, if you don't know, the, the way we got involved was by mining the, the big wizard, the Taproot wizard back, you know, I think it was number 506 or no, 640 something. Anyway, sub 1000, the big wizard. Uh, it's awesome. And anyway, another thing that we do is we have hash rate index, which is like tracks all of this, these mining metrics. And yeah, this is all time high hash rate, all time high network difficulty. What that means is that profits for miners have been going up, which means more miners are getting plugged in quicker. Uh, and so ultimately what that means is the Bitcoin network has been never been more secure than it is today. And it's partly in, in uh, <clears throat> partly due to all this inscription, uh, this inscription activity, which has been driving up transaction fees. Of course, bad for inscribers, great for miners. Uh, that is the, uh, you know, that is the trade-off we have for being on the most secure network uh, available. Uh, I'm very excited to be a part of all this. And uh, yeah, so what part of what part of mining do you think we should get into? Do you want to talk about like why mine, why mining difficulty adjusts, like how miners are viewing all of this, or should we just get into all of it? 
Sure. I mean, look, because this all-time high uh, of difficulty is a sort of recent event, I guess, what would you attribute it to? And how do you see things playing out? And I'm assuming Ordinals has a lot to do with this. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. So we've seen more transaction fee volume than ever before. And what that means, you know, more structurally to miners and why that's important, uh, transaction fees go to miners as extra reward uh, that they get included in the block. Uh, we've seen the highest transaction fee uh, as a percentage of block reward that we've seen ever since the last bull run. Generally, uh, fees skyrocket during bull runs. Like the last bull run, there was uh, there were uh, blocks that had transaction fee higher than the sub- subsidy. Um, right now, the Coinbase subsidy is about 6.25 Bitcoin, meaning even if there were zero transactions going around um, in the network, you would still get paid 6.25 BTC uh, by the network to continue. Uh, adding those blocks to the chain. But now there's all this extra volume. You know, there's, you know, some blocks are close to a Bitcoin worth of extra, uh, of extra reward, um, which increases dramatically as a percentage of the amount of, of, of revenue that miners are making. So that's what's driving this hash rate, uh, acceleration. Of course, there's also the, uh, the macroeconomic pressure upward, uh, from, uh, Bitcoin price now getting over 30K. Uh, you know, we're kind of in a new paradigm of mining for a little while here. Um, you know, springtime is all, always a great time to mine. Uh, you don't have to deal with the extreme cold temperatures, but even better, you don't have to deal with the extreme hot temperatures of the summer. Um, that's something that we'll see. Most likely we'll see, you know, as hash rate continues to go up here, uh, we'll probably reach a local maximum for a while. And of course, that is all uh, assuming if, if Bitcoin goes to 100K, then all bets are off. It doesn't matter what happens to uh it doesn't matter what happens to hash rate or network difficulty. Bit miners will continue coming online. But uh, my thought would be that right now we're going to continue to see this run up, especially with Bitcoin price and transaction fee volume, giving miners that extra bit of revenue that's definitely making them uh, more profitable uh, and you know incentivizing them to come online. Uh, but as you know, as you know, the global effects or how do I say the uh, the weather effects start to put some extra pressure on miners operationally. We may see a maximum here over the, you know, usually we see things peak out around July or August when uh, it gets exceptionally hot, really tough to run miners. Uh, and even if you, you know, even if you know price will continue to go up, there will be some of that downward pressure. Now, if price continues to go up over the summer, uh, you know, ordinals and, and inscribers, you know, we start going, you know, we start clicking off ordinals even faster than we have been before, or I should say inscriptions, not ordinals, but um, we start seeing inscriptions, you know, pop off faster than even before. Uh, we could see a massive run in hash rate over the, the last two quarters of the year, uh, which would be incredibly interesting because we, you know, we've seen big run ups in hash rate like this before. But the consensus amongst, uh, you know, the OG miners has been that most likely, um, the amount of hash rate coming online is going to plateau a little bit just because the technological advances, you know, we're kind of getting to the maximum efficiency you can get from a chip right now. Um, before it was really just around process, uh, sorry, the, uh, the, the process of gen of creating new chips, but now we're getting to, you know, the chips in these mining machines are, are as efficient as, uh, as, you know, the, the chips in your iPhone, the chips in your MacBook, like the best chips available. Uh, and so there's not a lot of headroom available there anymore. Uh, and so we were kind of thinking we'd see a plateau. Um, but if, you know, price continues to run up and all these ordinals continue to get inscri- these inscriptions continue to get inscribed. Um, you know, we could see that, you know, that top blow off and, and hash rate continue to skyrocket. 
Well, appreciate all the insight. This is, of course, Nick Hansen, ladies and gentlemen, CEO of Luxor Mining, a Bitcoin mining organization. If you have any questions for Nick about mining, about ordinals, hash rate, any of the above, uh, just hit that little purple button on the bottom right, if it works uh, for that matter, because right now Twitter Spaces has been giving us a little bit of a tough time, but we're happy to still be able to do this show. And we will clean up the technical issues and the podcast uploads uh, for those of you that share the show after the fact with the non-Twitter folks. Trevor, you have your hand raised. Hope we can hear from you. Trevor. Yeah, I just want to say it looks like Twitter Spaces is uh, working again. I was able to mute myself and raise my hand. So, uh, good job, Elon, on uh, on fixing that. And um, yeah, like a, a kind of a I guess a question uh, for Nick. Um, you know, we talked about the uh, the New York Times piece on mining. I'm curious if he has any any thoughts on on that. Uh, if, if he's read that or um, is familiar with um, some of the uh, the claims in that in that article. Yeah, of course. I mean, that was a pretty that was a pretty rocking. Uh, uh, piece, you know, d- directly targeted at B- Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining specifically, uh, and how it could affect, you know, potentially affect climate change. Um, that's the bottom line is of the story. Basically, the the the, for the, the synopsis is that uh, they made the claim that, you know, Bitcoin mining is accelerating uh, climate change and causing, uh, you know, irreparable environmental harm. And unfortunately, what they didn't really do was talk to much miners. Uh, and the miners, I know they, t- I know they talked to miners, but they really just disregarded what the miners were telling them, um, because you know Bitcoin mining is potentially the cleanest use of that amount of energy in the world. Uh, and the reason for that is that it's the cheapest. Uh, sustainable energy, energy that comes from solar, wind, hydropower, even nuclear mining, uh, those are the cheapest sources of energy. And Bitcoin miners are incentivized to use that energy first. Um, so most likely when the grid is at its highest load, uh, that's when Bitcoin miners start to turn off. It's called demand response or controllable load resourcing. It's one of the most important things to grid stability, in my opinion, especially here over the next decade, uh, which I do think will be defined by electrification. Um, all of the things around us are starting to become more and more electrified. Um, and if there's this consumer of last resort for, you know, for, inter- for electricity, which is Bitcoin, um, that allows, you know, all this new sustainable generation to come online and effectively use Bitcoin mining as a way to monetize that. Uh, I have a piece, I, I realize now I should probably repost this piece that I put out about a year and a half ago around how I think that Bitcoin mining will save the planet. Um, because I think that it, it's just, it incentivizes sustainable energy generation. And continues to uh, reward those that do that go out and make that uh, that investment in sustainable energy. So, the you know more conceptual or more concretely, what that means is, um, you know, if I build a big solar farm or a big wind farm in West Texas, I, I don't know immediately who's going to be using that power. Um, I can put a Bitcoin mine there, and the Bitcoin network doesn't matter where you are will 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 take that energy uh, and allow you to monetize the your uh, you know your generation asset. What they call like a solar pan- solar panel or a, a wind farm or even a coal plant is called a generation asset. It allows you to monetize your generation asset uh, immediately, and with um, and with that, Bitcoin effectively becomes a buyer of first and last resort for your energy. Now you get into grid balancing, which is a very important thing, especially in places like Texas or or deregulated grids where uh, there is the, where the generators are not required by law to sell to a grid or whatever. Uh, this in this way, the Bitcoin mine effectively reduces what's called the, the demand curve delta. Um, the demand curve uh, changes all the time; it's changing as we speak. Uh, and what that means is the amount of energy demanded by the grid 
uh, is changing constantly. So in the middle of the night, you know, it's 4 a.m., uh, it's cool. There's, you know, not a lot of heaters running, not a lot of, uh, of air conditioners running. People aren't, you know, watching TV and all that stuff. The demand is very, very low. Uh, can, you know, change that to, you know, six o'clock at night. It's, you know, the hottest time of the day. Air conditioners are running. Uh, industry is working. People are doing all the things they do. Uh, the demand is very, very high. When the demand is very high, Bitcoin miners most likely will turn off, which reduces the amount of load on the grid during that time. Conversely, at the bottom, Bitcoin miners will automatically turn on and start keep capturing some of that extra, uh, that extra energy that is other would have otherwise been wasted. Um, you know, some of the other mitigations that Bitcoin has, uh, it's called flare gas mitigation. So these are, you know, oil wells that are out in the middle of nowhere. Um, they are required to burn off this extra gas, this methane that comes off. Um, Bitcoin miners can capture that, use it and turn it into energy. They go out and capture that and, and actually turn that into, uh, instead of being methane, which is like a hundred times worse for, um, for the, for, as a greenhouse gas, uh, than, than CO2. They're able to burn that methane into CO2 and turn it into basically CO2 and water. Um, so that's, you know, a net positive for the, you know, a net positive for the environment as well. So there's all these things that Bitcoin has that make it very unique and really a, a critical part of the energy consumption story. And I really wish that the New York Times had decided to, you know, have a little bit more of an open mind and look into some of this stuff. Um, a little bit deeper and, and kind of remove some of the pred- prejudices and the uh, obvious slant that they were trying to put on the piece. Yeah, I mean, you you wonder what the incentives are behind that, right? And if I kind of boil down what you just talked about, you talk about renewable energy, you talk about, you know, basically maximizing the energy you have via Bitcoin to avoid waste. Uh, and you, and you, it's just a very futuristic way to kind of engage with energy. We're going to get ready to wrap, ladies and gentlemen. If anybody else has any closing questions uh, for Nick before we get ready to wrap, uh, wrap right now would definitely be the, the time to ask. I'm looking through the comments, not seeing a ton of direct questions uh, from the audience might have something to do with tr- Twitter's technical issues today. Nick, thank you so much for joining. Nick from Luxor Mining, ladies and gentlemen. Make sure you look him up. Give Luxor Mining a follow. Give Nick a follow. I'm uh, not sure if he's on stage right now because of the technical issues, but this has been the Bitcoin Show. We do the show every week at 2 p.m. Eastern time right here here on Twitter Spaces. If you follow the Bitcoin Show Twitter account, it's got links to the Spotify and Apple podcast uploads that you can share with people outside of the Twitterverse. Shout out to my co-host, Aubrey Strobel. Make sure you check out The Observation on YouTube. That's A-U-B. And then the worst, the rest of the word uh, observation on YouTube. I'm sure she has links in her Twitter account. Make sure you give her a follow. Of course, Trevor Owens the host of The Ordinal Show, founder of Ninja Alerts, partner at the Bitcoin Frontier Fund, all-around badass and investor in the Bitcoin space. The other host of The Ordinal Show, Leonidas, give him a follow. Publius, a Bitcoin OG, of course. And Rena, her first time being on the show today, absolutely killed it. Uh, petroleum engineer turned Bitcoin miner. Uh, absolutely loved the show today, loved the panel. Again, ladies and gentlemen, we will see you next week at 2 p.m. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. Share the show with your friends. Follow the Bitcoin show on Twitter, and we will catch you next time.